We're kicking off a new series called Relentless, and I'm really excited about the journey over the course of this month. To kind of get started, I want to take you to the mid-1800s, to one of the more iconic um, kind of figures in medical history, a, a lady named Florence Nightingale, who in so many ways was so beyond her time that oftentimes even the name doesn't fully convey how fully scientific, how much of a breakthrough from nursing to statistics she really served. And in fact, um, as a, a father of a little girl, one of the things I'm always intentionally trying to do is find stories of extraordinary women who kind of broke through barriers. And Florence Nightingale was one of those kind of women. In the mid-1800s, she's dispatched to what's called the Battle of the Crimea. It's a battle between some allied forces and the British versus Russia. As Florence Nightingale arrives on the scene, she's kind of stunned at what she sees. There's devastation and death everywhere. She's there to be a nurse to kind of help to bring the soldiers who've been, battled, who, who've been wounded in battle back to life. And what she finds is that it's another losing battle. In fact, she leaves the Battle of the Crimea, and some of the images and some of the tragedy never leaves her. She goes back to England, and she's a hero. In a, in a man's world, she is invited by Queen Victoria to help lead the nation. Yet in the same point that she's invited to lead the nation, because she's a woman, she's not even allowed to sit on the council that she inspires Queen Victoria to start. And so Florence Nightingale, living in a rented apartment in a hotel in London, sets to work trying to capture public sentiment. Because public sentiment in the day was that things like cholera and dysentery, which for me is nothing more than the Oregon Trail replayed, is essentially a reality of the modern life. You can't escape it. The chief medical kind of... Uh, experts of the day see it as just the reality of the modern world. It's inevitable. Cholera, dysentery just happens in the same way that sneezes and coughs happen. But because of Nightingale's time in Crimea, she's convinced they're wrong. And so Florence Nightingale presents and produces uh, something that is so revolutionary that 150 years later, we don't necessarily appreciate how truly profound it was. She presented a diagram. Actually, the diagram was called Diagram of the Causes of Mortality in the Army in the East. This was clearly before Twitter and before marketing teams would get a hold and kind of help kind of craft a better title. But this is essentially what she produces. You see, what most people didn't realize was that Florence Nightingale was also really gifted in mathematics. She was a statistician. And she knew that she needed to convey how truly devastating the dysentery, the cholera, all the preventable reasons of death versus the, the deaths on the battlefield. So she produces this graph. The blue represents the people, the number of deaths from treatable, preventable diseases. And the black represented the amount of death from the battle. Visually, it became very stark and clear that the thing that killed the British soldiers the most wasn't the battle. It was the microbiomes that were growing everywhere. It was biology, not bullets, that was taking people's lives. 
And that in the course of presenting this diagram, what she really wanted to illustrate was something that would forever shift the way people think about sanitary practices. See, what she did is she created two different diagrams, and it chronicles 1854, 1855, up to 1856. But see, something critically, there was this moment, and you can actually see it. So in the beginning of 1856, Nightingale had requested a team of sanitation workers to arrive at the hospitals in Crimea and, and to clean them. They showed up and they realized that pipes, water pipes that were supposed to be bringing fresh water was actually up beside pit latrines and those pit latrines were leaking into the water. She discovered that there were dead animal carcasses in the wells that they were supposed to be grabbing clean water from, that there was inadequate ventilation. And so she commissions this cleanup that happens at the beginning of 1856. And what you notice in the graph in the beginning of 1856 is while for two years what has killed people has been the invisible, not the visible bullets and cannonballs. After the team shows up, there is no more death as a result of cholera dysentery. The blue disappears because of simple things that they had changed. And this graph, which is called a rose diagram, completely changed the way the medical establishment in the day began to see things like hand washing and clean water and, and separation of things like pit latrines. Things that we almost find comical that they didn't see was something that completely was a blind spot for them. And in some ways, what Florence Nightingale did in 1859 when she presented this diagram is what I'd like to do this month in our series called Relentless. See, over the course of this month, I want us to lean into a season of spiritual growth. I want to walk us through what a picture of, of a dynamic spiritual life could look like. But to do so, I, I want to shift the way that you think about spiritual growth in a way that quite similar to what Florence Nightingale did. See, we're in a season that most people call Lent. It's a season that's marked by uh, the things that we give up, the things that we choose to not do as we focus on the cross leading up to Easter around the resurrection. My concern is that if we're not careful, even if we're being spiritually kind of like intentional in the season of Lent, that we can miss what's really supposed to happen as we walk through these intentional seasons of spiritual growth. That this isn't a season that's supposed to be marked by what we've given up. It's really meant to be a means to the end around appreciating what we've really gained. That Lent is supposed to foster a more relentless faith. And so how do we intentionally, as a group of people over the course of March, leading into April, preparing for Easter, how do we, as Christians, become relentless in our faith? How do you, as someone who's not sure about the Christian faith, how do you learn the mechanics and the mechanisms that help grow in your spiritual faith as you're exploring it? You see, I believe that spiritual maturity is not reserved for people who wear collars and 
who have titles on the front of their name like reverend or priest or father. But I think spiritual growth is something that Jesus invited all of us to experience. The power of the resurrection, the promise of peace and joy is not reserved for people who live in monasteries or who have graduate degrees in theology. It's it's meant for you and me. It's meant for the children who engage with us on Sundays through our kids' content. It's an invitation to all. And that may sound a little shocking to you because for many of us growing up, if you grew up in a spiritual context, Maturity was, was really limited to men or men with collars or degrees. And yet what we're about to see in one of Jesus' most famous illustrations, one of his most famous stories, is that this invitation the spirit of maturity is for all of us. But we have to change how we think about spiritual maturity. If you have the um, Encounter Church app, you'll find in the message notes or in the Bible section that I've already preloaded this um, specific passage for today. To give you a little bit of a backdrop before we jump in, I'm going to be reading from the book of Luke. Luke was a medical doctor. He was uh, the Ken Burns, the, the documentarian of his day, who set out to systematically, chronologically document and describe the life of Jesus and his ministry and his miracles. Luke eventually writes two volumes, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Those two volume sets become a foundation to chronicle the early history of the church. And now Matthew and Mark, who are the other biographical accounts along with John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this story inside of their biographical account of the life of Jesus. But Luke, because of his kind of chronological detail, because of how he Um, as an editor, arranges the content. I'm going to focus on Luke's um, description today because it it pulls out some of the details that I think is really important as we kind of go from this idea of loss and giving up to this relentless faith about what we can grow and gain. It begins in Luke chapter 8. It says, while a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. Now, here's the thing that you need to know from if you were to kind of zoom out and read a little bit more of this text, what you'll find is as they're walking in um, to this ministry moment we're about to have, there is a group of women, there are a group of men, there are um, what we would essentially call the core group of Jesus, of his followers. These men and these women uh, were the ones that would become the foundation of the early church and the growth that would happen in the years that would follow this moment. But what Luke is trying to draw attention to in the sentences before this is there are two different audiences there that day. And in this context, he says that there's a large crowd that's come. People from all over are showing up to hear Jesus speak up. And it says that Jesus tells them this story, this illustration. He said, a farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked out the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than what was sown. That was kind of strange, right? Like, just walked off the stage. 
And the reason I walked off the stage is I want you to feel how strange that moment really was. You see, according to the text, Jesus gives them this story, this illustration, and then he's done. This is it. Now you have to appreciate that the crowds who are gathered there, this is a first century agrarian society, which means they're intimately aware with growing crops and agriculture. The whole world is the 4-H club back then. And so here they are, and they hear Captain Obvious talking about seeds and the way seeds grow. I mean, it would essentially if I had got up here and said, in the winter, snow falls, falls some more, and then falls again. The snow builds up. It grows and grows and grows to their snow mountains. Snow plows come and plow the snow mounds and make them even larger. And then the sun shines, gets warmer. The rain falls and the mounds begin to shrink until finally there's no snow mounds left at all. Thank you. And then that's exactly what it was like when Jesus has this moment. They're like, what in the world did Jesus just tell us? He gave us the most obvious eye-rolling piece of information. Like when I tell my daughter things she knows, she's learned how this, this weird thing where her eyes just kind of roll in her head like, oh, dad, right? This is exactly what the crowd does, right? Jesus, we traveled all this way and you just told us something that every person on planet Earth knows. What's up with that? But what does Jesus understand? As he walks away from the crowd, he turns to his core, and he begins to circle them up. Now, there's a bigger context. It's not just that everyone's in the 4-H club in the day. Everyone is living in a very religious world. In this religious world, something akin to what you would find in uh, really religious societies, like if you were to travel to certain Muslim countries, you'd recognize that there's almost a, a, a government established around theology that the highest officials are religious officials. And this is very much what it's like in the first century. The religious leaders of the day are the powerful leaders of the day. They walk around with fancy robes. Everyone knows they're the smartest people in the room. And for most people, the idea of maturity was tied to information. The idea of maturity was tied to the degrees that you had and what you knew. That was what marked religious maturity in the day was your information. In fact, the Pharisees, the, some of the most educated religious leaders of the day, would have memorized the entire Jewish scriptures, or what Christians would call the Old Testament. Because the book had not been really invented and accepted in that, that time period, the predominant way of content being arranged was in a scroll. And so each one of the, the books in the Jewish scriptures or the Old Testament um, was a scroll, and a really good religious leader could have a nail driven into the scroll, and they could look at the nail, and based on how deep the nail went, and at what part of the scroll the nail went into, the religious leader of the day could literally tell you what section the nail stopped on, and the really gifted ones could tell you what word it hit. I'm not making that up. Imagine memorizing so much content that just by hearing and seeing visually, this is the scroll of Isaiah, you would know exactly where it stops. 
And just in case you think that's absurd, think back to the fact that I could play a song from the 90s right now, a song you haven't heard in decades, and you'd be like, this is how we do it. Right? You would know the words. So the human mind has this amazing capacity for memorization. And this is what the religious leaders tap into. And so, naturally, the leaders of the day were marked by the amount of information they had and what they knew. And this is exactly opposite of what Jesus is conveying. In fact, what he says in his private moment to his core followers before the text we're about to get into, to sum it up is this, that reflection is necessary for relevance. That reflection, reflecting on what Jesus said, is essential if you want to know the relevance it has for your life. Reflection is critical. Not information. Reflection is the key for transformation. So, the disciples naturally are saying, yes, Jesus, clearly reflection is essential for relevance. And I know what you're saying, Jesus, in this story, but I'm concerned that some of the people around us don't know. So, for their sake, could you tell them what you meant? Because I know but they don't, Jesus. And so Jesus goes and expounds in verse 11. He says, this is the meaning of the story. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. And then the fourth soil is the seed on good soil that stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Jesus says, look, what I just said to you, If you reflect on it, this is the relevance that starts to stand out. What I've given you is actually four different types of soils, four different types of paths, four different types of responses we have to truth. Now, Jesus is a genius because relevance really does come out of reflection. Even for us, almost 2,000 years later, we read that text and we're like, wait a second, Four soils, like this agricultural illustration. I'm I'm not sure this is specific relevant for me in my relentless pursuit of faith. I mean, I see Satan and thorns and things choking out stuff. And I don't know if this is specifically relevant for my life. Now, some of you maybe just had the thought like, oh, that's why he has the pitchfork. That's why the little red guy has the pitchfork. He's a farmer. No, 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 you're missing it. What Jesus is trying to convey here, again, reflection, breeds, relevance. He's trying to point out these are the three things that get in our way to experiencing the fourth thing as we go along the way of life. And those actually are incredibly relevant whether it's an actual Satan coming into your life or whether it's some kind of bigger spiritual force at work, I'd probably argue that I really don't come up on Satan's radar. Um, I'm 
probably one of those like really low level like whatever assignments. But the reality is, is that we all understand Satan is the father of lies. And lies are one of the biggest things that come in and rob us from the truth. We all have blind spots. In fact, Stephen Greenspan, who is a professor of psychiatry at the University of Colorado, actually wrote a book on gullibility. His subtitle was essentially Why We're Fooled and How We Could Avoid It. Now, Stephen Greenspan, um, his book was published, arrived at his house, and then two days later he, he learned that he lost a third of his retirement because he'd invested it with a man named Bernie Madoff. Stephen Greenspan, who literally wrote the book on gullibility, invested a third of his life savings with Bernie Madoff. That's kind of ironic. It's also indicative of the human struggle. We tend to fall for lies, and we all live with blind spots. We accept some of the lies in our life as just base operating systems. Some of the lies you bubbled up from within, and some of the lies you got told so much when you were growing up, you just assumed it was true, that you're worthless, that you'll never amount to anything, that you're not lovable, that you're a loser, that you're lazy, that you're never going to be fill in the blank. And we accept those lies. And those lies are really good cultivators and really good weed eaters of the truth when it comes in. But it's not just the lies. Jesus talks about another tendency in those four soils, that there's one that has an emotionally kind of active response, right? And all of a sudden it starts to grow in our life and take root, and then it just kind of withers away because there's really nothing there to take hold to. I've seen this a lot. It was one of my biggest fears in my spiritual growth. Right after I became a Christian, I was so afraid that, I was just going to become like one of those people that I'd seen who were really excited about faith, and then a couple months later, they disappear. The people that, honestly, as a pastor, I still see a lot. People who come in, and they're so moved by the music, but, or they're inspired by a story. But then life gets hard, and all of a sudden, the emotional excitement's not there anywhere, and the faith starts to wither with it. That's something we all struggle, right? I mean, how many things fill your garage or your attic that you used to be excited about? And now it just collects dust. How many hobbies, how many books, how many ideas? You were so excited. You were so passionate. And then it just got put up on a shelf to collect dust. Then Jesus tells another story about a tendency of one of the soils to lose sight of the priority. It starts to grow, and but all of a sudden the weeds start to grow up too and begin to choke out the things that were really important. All of a sudden, it's the losing sight of what the priority is that Jesus said that life's worries and wealth and relationships, all these different things begin to creep in. Now, if you were in the first century Palestinian context, you would know instantly the power of weeds on fields because weeds in wheat fields could grow to be six feet tall. They would outgrow the crop that was being planted. And it would oftentimes look like 
wheat. The chaff would keep growing until you intentionally recognized it and pulled it out. And this is something I think we can all relate to, right? Whether it's binge-watching Tiger King or kind of getting lost in some internet hole or YouTube videos. Maybe we've seen this play out in our relationships with a spouse or with the kids or in our job. We had a lot of excitement, and now we just kind of go through the motions where we used to engage in conversation. Now it's just checking in to sync up and link up around calendars. We lose sight of the priority. And that many of us, the danger of Lent is not that we've had 15 years of spiritual growth because we've had 15 years where we've walked through the Lent season. It's really more that we've had one year 15 times over and over. We do the same thing every year and we get the same results. And Jesus is trying to capture for them a different picture than just information. He's inviting his core to to understand that anyone can experience maturity. But again, Jesus is genius. Reflection breeds relevance. There are three ways Jesus is unpacked. Things can play out the way we don't want them to. But if you really reflect on the parable of the sower, or what some even call the parable of the four soils, what you'll find is actually there's only two outcomes. There's not, while there may be four soils, what you really have is three different ways to get to the same place. And one way to get to the right one. The one outcome is this barren field. Now, this image is not cropped. This is actually barren. Okay, you'll get that later. This is a field where nothing is growing. This field three months, six months ago could have been thrown with seed and birds could have came and ate it up. It could have been a a field where the seeds began to grow fast, but there was a lot of rock and it just kind of withered away. Or it could have been a field where the weeds have grown, already gone through their life cycle and choked out the life, and now it's dead too. You see, three ways to get to the same place. Barren. Desert. But Jesus gives them another outcome. A place of bounty. A place of richness, of growth, where the harvest is 30, 60, 100-fold what the other started with. It's a place not marked by desert, but in this blueberry farm, a place marked by desert, right? He's giving them two different pictures, two different outcomes. We can follow three paths to get to one, (coughs) or we can follow one path to get to this one. This is why Jesus says, but the seed on good soil, Stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. He's trying to convey to the core who's gathered around, who's listening in, this really important piece of information. That there's this whole crowd that's dispersing. And as they leave, Jesus wants them to understand this crowd. Look, you see all of these people. Here's the thing, core. 
It takes more than showing up to grow up in your faith. It takes more than just a moment if you're going to have spiritual movement in your life. Showing up doesn't equal growing up. It's not even knowing a lot more equals growing. What he's saying is, what do you do with what you have? I get in this conversation, I have two graduate degrees in theology, and one of my degrees, one of my areas of study is spiritual growth. And so I'll have these conversations. I used to work with students, and so I'd have this conversation sometimes with them where they're like, well, you know, I think that growing up comes with deeper knowledge, like more, like bigger words of, around the faith or like deeper, deeper study. And one of the things I would oftentimes push back on, I would say, look, I can come up on this stage and I can use words that I paid a lot of money to learn. Words like sanctification or eschatology, words that mean nothing to you. And you'll walk away thinking, wow, he's really smart, he's really spiritually mature. But what I know is that big words don't mean big faith. A confusing message is not a sign of a deep, profound spiritual insight. It's a reflection of someone who didn't spend enough time studying to prepare for a talk. If you're confused by what I'm saying, it's not your fault. It's my fault. That maturity, what I see clearly in the text of the New Testament letters, is a standard not based on what we know, but a standard based on what we do with what we know. We're held accountable, not for what we don't know. I tell people all the time, they're like, and especially in this season, I've, I've had a lot of people reach out and they're like, what about the book of Revelation right now? And I'm like, you know what? Here's a really helpful piece of information. Don't worry about the book of Revelation. Here's the central theme of the book of Revelation. We win, and I have no clue how it happens. Right? I have thousands of pages around the book of Revelation and interpretations and language and the Greek and the history and the context. Thousands of pages that I have in my library dedicated to the book of Revelation. And I think the central theme of the book of Revelation is we win, and it's going to be really tough on the way to that end. I don't choose to focus on studying the book of Revelation because it's not the things I don't understand that I think get in the way of me spiritually growing. It's the things I do understand that I don't do. Let's imagine, as a thought experiment, you and I are held accountable for everything we know in the Bible. Or we're held accountable for everything we don't know in the Bible. Which scares you more? Hmm, what I know. Because I don't struggle with the things I don't know, but I do struggle with being kind and generous, forgiving. I do struggle with those things. I don't struggle with premillennial rapture and eschatology. Don't worry about what those words mean. Okay? Spiritual growth is a lot more than big words or showing up. If we want to grow up, it's about what we do with what we've been given. This crop, the spiritual fruit in our life. Honestly, 
God desires that you look more like Jesus than he does you knowing a bunch of big words about Jesus. I've met a lot of religious people who have a ton of knowledge. And I'm not knocking knowledge. I've spent a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of resources to get that knowledge. But I recognize that that knowledge is a means to the end. It's not the end. The end is this crop, this intentionality of hearing the word and applying it, filtering it into my life, reflecting on it so that it becomes relevant relevant to my life and starting to actually put traction to the truth. And so what does this look like to, to grow in this? Well, the key word is this one. It says persevering, but that's not essentially the best way to put it. The, the word persevering in the English for us as kind of English hearers of this, we automatically box this word in. And we box it into a, a box that is not what Jesus was saying. This word in the first century can mean persevering, but it really looks a lot more like the patience. So yeah, you could say I persevere in a marathon, but it would mean the patience of the 26 miles. Of like I've still got 15 more miles to go. And I've got to be patient. I've just got to persist. I've got to keep moving. I've got to keep stepping, keep running, keep pacing. And eventually I'll get to that place. It's more the patience that he's trying to convey. Because there is no such thing as overnight fruit. In a microwavable, instantaneous, Instacart, Grubhub kind of way, life that we have. There's no instantaneous way to produce fruit. We may Instacart a banana, but it still takes nature a certain amount of time to make that banana grow. You can't delegate the growing of fruit. You can't say, well, that fruit takes seven months, so I'm going to give it to seven people who are all going to take a month to make it grow. You can't delegate fruit growth. It's a reality. Fruit takes patience. Crops take time. And it's about our persistent presence, progress, and patience with what we already have, cultivating it, that lets it grow. In fact, if we want to be relentless, I think there's a study in the University of Michigan around relationships that kind of bring a little bit more life to what Jesus is saying. Terry Orbush studied 373 couples over the course of 20 years. And her chief study was what marks, what, what's the indications, what's the, the prescription for couples who grow in emotional intimacy? Because when you first start dating, you talk about everything. You share everything. You give everything. You're like, and here was my lifelong dream. And when I was a child and I was six years old, this is my favorite television show, and this is what I watched, and I always thought when my little pony said this, this is what I was going to be when I, right, like you just, boom, everything. But what happens, typically, is there's a movement from emotional intimacy in relationships to play calling, calendar syncing, um, grandparent coordination, FaceTiming, right, all of these logistics and less of the mechanisms of love. And what she found was that the couples who were the strongest, who were the most emotionally intimate, they had a general practice of roughly 10 minutes a day of having substantive conversation. Not coordinating calendars, not 
syncing up around schedules for who's going to pick up what kid, when and where, or reaching out to in-laws or to grandparents to have conversations. No, it was personal feelings, fears, frustrations, challenges. It was that patient, persistent, intentional movement over a long term that brought the fruit of emotional intimacy in these couples' lives over the course of 20 years. And it's the same mechanisms for us growing the spiritual fruit in our life. It takes more than showing up if we want it to grow up. And we intuitively recognize there is no other area of our life where that works. You don't show up in your relationships. You don't just show up in your job and expect to get a promotion. You don't just show up in your finances and expect that you're going to see your balances grow. Showing up does not equal growing up in any area of our life But the challenge is because spirituality seems so weird and so distant and so confusing, oftentimes because we equate it with just information and not transformation, we think showing up is growing up. And we end up not maturing up at all. We have 20 years in the church, but we don't have 20 years of spiritual growth. And the reason this matters is because you and I The invitation from God Almighty, no matter where you are, whether you're not even sure about Christianity or whether you've been walking with Jesus for decades, there is more to your spiritual faith. There is more that could be marking your spiritual growth than you currently have. That no matter who you are, there is more harvest. There is more fruit that God desires to bring in your life. And that all of us, all of us, if we're not careful, can fall into the trap of those three soils. Because it's not a one and done. It's an everyday something that has to be done of identifying what soil is currently in my life around the truths that I have, the things that God is trying to teach me, and ruthlessly, relentlessly getting rid of the three so that I see more of the fourth and more of the growth in my life. Which is why over the course of this month, I want to help you. I'm going to give you the resources, tools, uh, and, and even beyond Sunday morning. Because it takes more than showing up to grow up. That's why this Wednesday, over the course of this month, it may be a disaster. But I'm going to try something that doesn't really exist. I'm going to ask you to take a walk with me just one day a week. It's going to be a, a digital podcast. It'll feel a little different because it's meant to be about a 20-minute walk that we go on. Now, over the course of that 20-minute walk, I'm going to tell you some stories. I'm going to ask you some questions for you to reflect on as you're walking. And you and I, in the course of what could be an incredibly beautiful week weather-wise, by the way, I don't know if you've seen the weather, but what? Right? I saw a six and a zero. So, yes, you're going to want to walk this week. And guess what? I want to walk with you, and I want to help you walk more in truth and gain ground in your faith. So, throughout the month of March, every single Wednesday, I'm going to be dropping a new podcast called Walking in Truth That's just meant to be a nice, relaxing, it's not a sermon, it's not a message, it's a walk. It's also one of the reasons that um, we put Dream Big right in our icon, in our app. Because I don't want just spiritual resources to be relegated to people whose calendars can sync up around certain content. But actually, every single month, um, we're going to be dropping new, fresh content in that section. We're going to call it, in other words... And you'll see it pop up next month. For, for right now, we're doing Dream Big. And it'll be a different, different content, different area of spiritual growth every single month. 
Sometimes it'll be me. Sometimes it'll be someone else who I love and respect who I think can bring value to you. Sometimes it'll be around relationships or parenting. Sometimes it'll be around finances. Sometimes it'll be around conflict. On any given month, it can be anything. And the goal is to help further equip you with quality resources, with reflection questions, to help you find more traction for truth in your life. And over the course of the rest of this month, we're going to lean into a little bit more, and I'm going to talk about how to pray and how to start to move towards a richer prayer life, how to engage with the Bible, and how to actually see and experience this relentless faith that Jesus talks about beginning to show up in our lives. And to kind of help wrap that up, I want to give you some questions to close out our day. Based on what you're doing, what outcome are you headed towards? If there are two outcomes, the barren or the bountiful, the desert or the dessert, which one are you headed towards right now? If you took a snapshot and you looked at the trajectory of your life, which one are you moving towards? Not a condemning question. It's a challenging question to take stock of where you are because you don't have to stay there. Second question is, which of the three soils do you struggle with the most? See, the reality is, I think we all have our struggles. And while maybe you struggle with all three, there's probably a tendency that there's one over the other that you struggle with. So which one do you have a tendency to struggle with? And then in light of that struggle, how, you, how can you intentionally cultivate the fourth soil in your life? If there are blind spots, what ways can you avoid those blind spots? If you have a tendency to be a strong starter and a bad finisher, what does it look like to cultivate finishing strong into your spiritual life around certain areas? Or if you have a tendency to lose sight of the priority and let other things drift and creep into your life, if you find yourself wasting time, maybe that's an area intentionally, that you start to cultivate that fourth soil in. Because the reality is, is that for all of us, regardless of theology degrees, regardless of titles or collars around your neck, the invitation for Jesus, from Jesus, is that you can have a dynamic, spiritually rich life. One that doesn't just flow into you, but that grows beyond you and produces a harvest and a fruit that 10, 15, 20 years from now, you wake up one day and you stand in awe of who you've become in your relentless 